Welcome to the Joint Multinational Readiness Center Train to Win podcast. I'm your host, Captain Brandon Shorter. I'm a maneuver company primary observer coach trainer from the Panther Maneuver Task Force at JMRC. In this podcast, I am talking with Staff Sergeant Christopher Curley, the Battalion Small Unmanned Aerial System Master Trainer and Section Leader for 1-4 Infantry, the Op 4 Battalion here at JMRC. We're going to discuss the current state of SUAS programs and their employment, as well as the potential future state of small unmanned aerial systems, the counter to those, and other enablers. Sergeant Curley, welcome and thanks for joining me. Hey, sir. Thank you uh, for having me here today. I'm pretty excited to talk about the topics at hand. JMRC has brought us here today to talk about the art, an article that you recently wrote concerning your observations from the rotations here at JMRC in regards to small and manned aerial systems employment, electronic warfare, and modern warfare in general. I understand the article is scheduled for publication in Infantry Magazine this summer. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the article you wrote and why you wrote it? Yeah, sure. No problem. Uh, so a little bit about me. Uh, in January 2016, I got to JMRC and was immediately assigned to 1-4 Infantry. Uh, here at the Army's European CTC. Uh, Initially served on the battalion staff for two years, first as the S-4 and then as the AS-3. Following that, I took command of Blackfoot Company, one of the rifle companies down there, where I commanded for a year and a half. After that, I moved over to the Panther Maneuver Task Force, uh, where I started as a rotational planner for a year and an AS-3 observer coach trainer. Then following that, I moved down to become a maneuver company primary observer coach trainer for a year. So all told, I've participated in directly or indirectly something to the tune of 20 or more date rotations while at JMRC. Uh, It's given me an opportunity to observe uh, quite a bit uh, across those rotations. And generally what I'm finding uh, is that units are not employing their SUAS very well. Uh, They're also not doing a very good job of defending against the enemy's employment as well, uh, whether it's that they're ill-equipped, undertrained, uh, you name it. Uh, and recently, the Modern War Institute had published a couple podcasts that inspired uh, my eventual writing of the paper because I wanted to share my observations and some of the things that you and I did when we were together in Blackfoot Company, uh, just to share knowledge. Uh, and so really what the paper focuses on and what we're trying to talk about today is what can we do now as an army with what we have, equipment and personnel, and then also to discuss a little bit about where I think we need to look to improve in the near term for threats that are either on uh, or just over the horizon. So that's really what the paper's about and what we want to talk about today. Well, 20 uh, rotations is quite a lot to see, sir. I'm sure that... Uh your observations have proved very effective in helping the units. A little bit about myself. In 2016, I arrived to uh, the Hohenfeld's training area and was assigned to Blackfoot Company. I served as a rifleman, uh, rifle team leader. And uh, the week I got here, I went to the Raven initial qualification training. And from that moment onwards, I was hooked on the potential of the technology at hand. Uh, I went on to the SUAS master trainer course. And um, between myself and Captain Shorter, we uh, formed a section every rotation in the rifle company to truly uh, fulfill the potential of the equipment. In 2019, I took the position at the Battalion S3, being the small UAS master trainer, and uh, took everything I learned down in Blackfoot Company and reapplied it up at the battalion. So, sir, set the stage for us. Uh, What are we talking about? 
So imagine for a second that you're a rifle company commander and you've been assigned an objective in your brigade's AO to seize a small village. And you come up with your plan and you begin to move through the vegetative terrain to move unobserved to your objective. And there's one limited linear danger area that you have to cross. And as you're doing so, you begin to take effective and accurate indirect fires. It causes some casualties in your formation, but you move out of the effects area, reconsolidate, and finish your movement towards your objective. You do some limited reconnaissance, and then you begin to prepare your assault. But right as you're about ready to call the assault, you receive another series of mass indirect fires on your position, causing you casualties to the extent that you cannot content continue your attack. And you look up in the sky and you see a drone that you hadn't observed, you hadn't heard it, and you wonder you know, how long it had been observing you because it wasn't a friendly drone. And so these are the conditions that units are training under here at JMRC, and they're really struggling with it. Uh, they're not prepared. They're not well trained for it. They don't seem to have the equipment to deal with that. But that is exactly what our formations are going to have to deal with on the future battlefield. And so that's really what I wanted to talk about here today and also what I wrote the paper about. So Sergeant Curley, you're on the forefront of this problem in your current role. You know, other organizations in Europe are reaching out to you for help with their SUAS programs because you seem to have cracked the code on how to make these effective. In some cases, you're actually training SUAS operators and master trainers from other units. What are you seeing with these other SUAS programs? Right. As cracking the code, sir, um, mostly a lot of that, and as we'll get in through this podcast, uh, a lot of that was accepting that the system that the Army uses to train this uh, needs to be heavily, heavily tailored, um, and it is not a one-size-fits-all. Uh, the U.S. Army structured its SUAS program in an additional duty manner. The system proved relatively effective during the coin period and when SUAS was a commander's novelty item. Uh, most, mostly operated from fobs and cops and fixed positions. But as we move into the decisive action environment, though small UAS needs to be, needs to be used before, during, and after the objective and through all points. It can never be put down. It has to be used all the time. Uh, but the way we've trained, uh, small UAS, uh, master trainers holds to hold small UAS initial qualification training. Uh, it hasn't changed. Um, the training's usually haphazard in manner. It's been rushed. Um, and because there's not an institutional benchmark of knowledge among, uh, staffs of how to train it, they think that, well, We'll just hold a course and it will just go through that easy. But it, it's a real piece of POI and it's just to master the basics. We haven't even begun about using the equipment in an effective manner. Um, some of the things I'm seeing is uh, the master trainers are constantly being asked to train more. So uh, most brigades on average only have one to zero master trainers. And those are BCTs. And that's what we're seeing coming from the RAF units. as That's pretty much the Army standard is to have one to zero master trainers. Um, with that being said, they're asked to do initial qualification courses where uh, they'll be asked to train 15 at a time when there's only one SME there. And it's just not, um, it's not conducive to success. 
and um, numbers are relatively irrelevant in small U.S. It would be better to have um, two or three um, highly skilled operators than 20. Um, and that's kind of goes against some of the what's been being done the last few years, but for it to be successful and flourish, those are the kind of things we'll have to uh, take. Um, there's nothing about, even though maneuver company commanders are hold their SUAS programs and they're the ones who own it, um, there's nothing taught about it in MCCC or iBullet. They're just things that they'll have to find out when they get there. Um, and not to mention MLC for uh, our senior NCOs. Uh, in addition, as far as organization on the ground, is um, we constantly have to chop together resources to man the equipment. So that's some units will choose to uh, just have it managed and done from the S2. So S2s will have to take analysts and form a crew. I've seen that done before. Uh, sometimes the scouts own it. Um, other methods is they put somebody, the master trainer in the S3, and they have to manage it, much like myself, which I think in the current state is the most effective way to manage it because at the end of the day, it's about training and resourcing to do the training. So these are some of the things I'm seeing. Um, it's not conducive to success on the ground. And uh, sir, you commanded a rifle company. How did you employ your small UAS? I was fortunate. Uh, when I took command of Blackfoot Company, you had just completed your master UAS trainer course. And prior to taking command, I had also benefited from the battalion receiving some of the DJI Phantom quadcopters uh, to replicate the current threat in the environment. So I got to tinker with those. And then when I got to Blackfoot Company, I was already thinking of ways that we could utilize that device and others uh, with your education. So if you remember, we went out, we trained a few different techniques, such as flying from the command vehicle, etc. And then we went into the first rotation, Allied Spirit 8. And that's when I really had my aha moment for how valuable small UAS could be. If you remember you were riding in my command vehicle with me and we had just completed our attack. Uh, we'd breached the enemy's main defensive positions and were holding open a lane for the rest of the battalion. We just passed through the main effort company and we're in the process of reconsolidating when we got word that the enemy was staging for a counterattack on our flank. And if you remember, we had you fly the quadcopter up in the air real quick and go take a look at where we understood the enemy was gathering. And we identified him assembling for his counterattack. And I was able to call over a platoon leader to my vehicle, have him look at the screen and see what the drone was seeing. I told me he had five minutes to prepare and conduct an attack to defeat that enemy. And the platoon leader ran over gathered his remaining vehicles and conducted an immediate attack while you and I watched it on the drone feed. And so in that moment right there, the, the speed at which we could conduct a counterattack and then watch the results to call for fire on the enemy brought it all together for me. And then in a future exercise, I had paired you with the fire support officer when we were in the defense and you were able to fly the drone 
beyond what we could see in our engagement area. And you and the FSO working targets were able to stymie an entire battalion, just the two of you. And over the course of several other rotations, there were many different ways in which we employed the UAS uh, in your hands, whether you were riding with me or you were in a vehicle with the FSO or, or you were offset in your own position. It, it showed how many different ways that we could effectively employ that device. And that's kind of really where it solidified for me just how valuable small UAS is on the modern battlefield when you have a capable operator. You know, the biggest challenge that I had when we did use it was what to do with yourself as a career. You know, at the time you were a rifle team leader and every time that I wanted to fly UAS, I had to pull you out of a fire team and put you somewhere else doing a job that was really an additional duty for you. And so it became very difficult to help you develop as an individual in your career as an infantryman, but also recognize that you are absolutely a combat multiplier when you are flying that drone. And so that's the biggest challenge I had to deal with and also kind of how I look to employ SUAS in, in all different manners. Yeah, uh, there's some really great examples I've done over the years here. Um, in the summer of 2020, um, I was instructed to take a section of small UAS um, to the Defender 20 exercise. Um, and we had uh, two teams, three men a pop, the uh, one with a Raven and quadcopter and the other with Puma and quadcopter. And we were attached to a Polish um, combined arms battalion, T-72s and BMP-1s. You were sort of requisite op for formation. Um, and we assisted them both uh, defending a dry gap crossing with a company minus a T-72s, uh, really stymieing the brigade with indirect fires, targeting engineer vehicles, uh, methodically eliminating them slowly off the battlefield so they could mass as much combat power as they wanted, but they still were not able to breach. And this really was a headache for the formation. And then after that, engagement had uh, culminated, um, again, stymieing the brigade on the wet gap crossing, setting back their conditions for a number of hours, um, and also working directly for the battalion commander and sort of breaking out your more advanced tools of a small U.S. operator using your additional control station so he can watch what's going on. And not with an OSRBT, not with this large, complex uh, command um, command node, but with very archaic map protractor um, markers and, you know, just, yeah, just keeping it simple. So with your small section and the hand controller with the battalion commander, you were able to provide him real-time intelligence of the enemy's actions on their side of the gap to allow him to attrit those formations with indirect fires or maneuver his forces into a position of advantage. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Couldn't have hit it. Couldn't have hit it better, sir. The um, particularly maneuvering, even when fires were not an option, maneuvering into a better position to put his small force in a better position than the enemy's, particularly for near side ambushes and leading a counterattack at the end. 
um, this, these things um, were able to enable the Polish battalion commander with a skill set he had never interacted with. He had no idea who I was when I arrived. I arrived to the battalion. He had no foremention that I was coming. Um, and uh, I took a day to show him all the tools. Um, I told him how far I could go and what I could do and what the rules were. And uh, really just kind of max. And he, he went to town. He maximized the effect. So describe that a little bit. Obviously, your drone is a sensor for him being able to provide information. Uh, and it can function as an observer for call for fire. Uh, I imagine he fired a couple fire missions off that. Can you describe a little bit how much he used your platform to call for fire? Yeah, certainly. Um, the The nature of his uh, formation was not particularly, didn't have a lot of enablers. He didn't have a, a staff, just a command group. Um, so for fire missions, um, it was some somewhere in the area of 90 out of the 123 that were fired that came from uh, the small UAS and just really, just really uh, heckling them at all at every turn. Um, even if it wasn't with DPICM to attrit armored vehicles, um, turning certain formations with mortars into certain engagement areas and uh, just really uh, maximizing its effect at every turn. So it seems like in a short period of time, you made a believer out of that battalion commander in terms of what you could accomplish, similar to how you made a believer out of me when I was a company commander. That's outstanding. What other examples do you have uh, from your experiences where you've effectively employed these systems? Yeah, certainly, sir. Uh, one of the more recent uh, examples from the fall of 2020 was CBR-14. Um, again, same uh, task org with the uh, SUAS section. Um, in this very, on the last day of the exercise, um, observing the enemy coming forward to make a breach in the northern part of our box. We call it this area, Checkpoint 24, and it simulates a uh, small river. Um, so they're, they're again doing a wet gap crossing, but this time is where the training came in. And uh, I'm working two radios. Uh, one is on um, the fire's net, and the other is on the battalion command, just uh, monitoring. And uh, the operator just makes a cursory comment and says, uh, Sergeant Curley, what's this cold thing? And uh, he's like, can you come over here and look at this? And, uh, you know, so, again, it's about training because uh, the requisite skill set does not come built. You have to teach it. Um, it was an ABV with its bridging equipment right on top. And it made a very distinct uh, heat signature as compared to the other vehicles around. So, again, um, it's, to, and it's to highlight the trust that I have in the operators to mention things that they're not scared that they're going to mention those things, that this does not, this should not be here, or this is different. And it's to highlight the training to, you know, exploit that. So without the breach force in question was, well, uh, it was delayed very significantly by indirect fires um, over the next period, next hour. Um, and once this was alerted to the battalion, it became, um, I was directly redirected, I was redirected to uh, attrit that formation very heavily and just not allow them to breach. And also, it also gives a 
a heads up to the formation on our side of the river, our Delta company, uh, our tank company in this case. And he has a, now he has a much clearer picture in his head of, okay, the breach force hasn't arrived yet. I have time to prepare myself. And I'm also going to know when the breach and where it's going to happen because it's under constant observation. So just to summarize what you told me, your trained operator identified the enemy's breach formation. You recognized it, communicated that up to the battalion commander on the command net, and he gave you basically carte blanche to begin to trade that formation with indirect fires. And then you were also able to simultaneously communicate to the maneuver formation guarding that position uh, about what was coming at them in what strength and in what disposition. Uh, did it, is that what I'm hearing? So uh, quickly, like the first thing is um, today, what you can do right now, you're in charge of formation is um, select individuals, the key individuals who you know can perform in a slightly more um, um, environment with more trust. So um, we already do this subconsciously in our formations. Um, sniper programs select their own people. Um, we also don't put, you know, our, we don't put bad people behind the driver's wheel. Um, this should just be seen as another avenue of that. And instead of the traditional notion and the cultural idea that, okay, well, we'll just need to put this, we just need to send a guy and just so we can check the block for the tasking. And we should be a little more deliberate and careful when we're choosing these individuals because uh, they can, if the conditions are set, have a tremendous impact on the formation. Um, so the second thing is right now what you can do today is start using the equipment in every type of exercise. So it starts at platoon. You should be working platoon up with the equipment and it should just be something we do inherently and instinctively. In the future, when um, the Army's small or short-range reconnaissance asset comes out, which will be at the end of the, or the beginning of next year, you'll see it. Every platoon in the Army will have one. Um, squad begins at squad. So we should be starting to both being able to use our equipment and train against the enemy equipment. And it should be an inherent thing as we go forward, much in a similar way to the IED fight was going, you know, in the coin period. And that's kind of the attitude we should take for that uh, with this. It's here to stay. It's here in force. And it can both, and unlike the coin environment IED threat, it can be leveraged both to our advantage and the enemies can be, um, you know, can hit us back. Um, the third thing, and by doing those first two things, you enable this third thing, um, which is the third point, which is uh, resident knowledge. Uh, the PL should leverage their asset. The command company commander should leverage his asset. And eventually, in the future, by 2024, 2023, we'll have the long-range reconnaissance asset, which um, will be the command, battalion commander's asset. So in reality, um, if we all learn to employ our assets early and as an institution from the beginning, then this will never be a problem. Yeah, that's a good point about the resident knowledge you know, something that I'm observing is that that doesn't really exist here. Uh, company commanders in particular, they're, they're afraid to fly their system. Uh, they're not comfortable with it. They don't have the trust with their operators. 
And so incorporating SUAS into their maneuver is not second nature yet, but I absolutely think that it needs to be. And so that's a good point. Now, not everybody is going to be able to operate under some of the ideal circumstances that you and I were able to. You know, the Hohenfels training area was was quite the laboratory for us to experiment with. But take us real quick and just describe some of the key things or experiences that you've had. Uh, maybe they've changed or evolved, uh, but that have allowed you to accomplish some of the things that you've done. I can talk about some of those, sir. So the first thing is, is when I left the small UAS master trainer course, which is uh, owned by um, Maneuver Center of Excellence, I left a little underwhelmed. They talked about extensively about regulations and um, how they inhibit small UAS more than uh, help. But largely, the POI I went through did not materially contribute to my eventual understanding of how effective employment of the system. So... Um, during the master trainer course, they don't really go over employment. They do teach you more about the technical specifications of the equipment, which is good. Um, it needs to be learned and there needs to be more of that. But there's nothing about, you know, how would you launch fully concealed or how would you, um, you know, only launch in a 10 by 10 square surrounded by vegetation and then string that antenna up over the tree line to enable your line of sight so that terrain doesn't inhibit you anymore. So there's no practical um, PEs down there about that stuff. And that's sort of the, uh, that's one of those things we need to bring forward. Um, I was fortunate to have a commander who encouraged its employment, which was yourself, sir, and take some risks with the equipment. And uh, such as the Raven, um, the Raven's older brother, the Puma, which is a phenomenal piece of equipment, and the DJI Phantom, which will pretty much, um, so if the Army's looking for an SSR, SRR employment class, I pretty much have done the book on that already. And um, further, I was able to get additionally, when I first started flying here at H on the HTA, um, you know, we were allowed uh, six, maybe six square kilometers of bras, um, restricted operating zone, the box, your small UAS uh, flies in essentially. Um, but now coming forward, with what I've developed and the trust I have with the airspace manager. Um, sometimes we have areas as big as 26, 27 kilometers um, of RAWs, which is absolutely massive. Um, I've never heard of it being that massive. And we use all that airspace. We're not just taking it up to just hold on to it. It's being used uh, effectively. And uh, for instance, at NTC, you can only have a three-kilometer circle. So um, we're definitely outperforming the other training centers in that regard. We're letting the equipment kind of live up to its potential, which is very important um, because we, we don't really know what the equipment can do until we really test its metal because that's important as well. Um, in all, and I, I think the biggest thing was being able to fly in the date rotation, um, going directly from initial qualification training directly into the date environment and employing it with maneuver, with fires, with intelligence, um, and all six warfighting functions um, throughout. So being able to um, take a theory um, and then immediately put it into practice and then kind of punch holes in the theory and take away some lessons learned has been you know, absolutely uh, incredible uh, for my experience. So it sounds like you've had some pretty good opportunities 
with favorable conditions as well to grow your skill set. And for the larger audience out there, uh, obviously Sergeant Curley didn't become as good as he is overnight, and it took time and experience. Um, but these are all things that you can achieve at the home station as well. You know, I spent my lieutenant days at Fort Campbell, and I can envision developing training and getting resources and time to be able to make the opportunities to create uh, operators and leaders like Sergeant Curley. So if you're trying to think through how do you replicate and create some of the same successes he's had so that you can build resident knowledge in your programs, uh, build trust in your organization to give you the airspace to do what you need to do and also to make incorporation of SUAS kind of second nature to your formations. Um, it's definitely worth the investment of time and resources. Wouldn't you agree, Sergeant Curley? So I think we, we touched on the beginning that, yes, it is worth the time and uh, investiture of resources. But um, I do kind of want to bring up the point that it's slowly creeping um, from – it's slowly creeping into the realm of um, – necessity um because of the the benefits it brings and as soon as it kind of goes away from a formation uh they kind of scramble to get it back and that is something i've noted um it's it's once it becomes a hallmark of the formation or uh something they rely on and use effectively um it it start it stops becoming uh, something additional and starts becoming a pillar but that being said, sir, we've talked a lot about how we can improve with our existing equipment and organization, but I'd like to turn the conversation towards the future. As a former commander and now a mentor and coach of current company commanders, what concerns you the most? So my biggest concern right now uh, partly is that we have to have this conversation, but it's also what I'm serving out in the rotations. I recently watched a company commander. He was going into an attack on an objective, and they'd moved through the night. And they were consolidating on their objective and preparing to move to a follow-on objective. And I looked into the sky and I saw uh, what appeared to be a Puma drone. And I pointed the drone out to the company commander I was with and I asked him if it was a friendly or an enemy drone. And he said, well, it's not friendly. We're not flying. So I said, okay, so it's an enemy drone. And I said, where's your drone defender device so that you can try to disrupt that drone. He said, oh, it's it's in the truck 100 meters away. I said, okay, well, are you going to go get the device? He said, nah, we're just going to leave it there. And shortly after that, uh, indirect fire started raining down in his company and causing casualties. And so that right there was an aha moment for me that not only are we not prepared to deal with flying our own devices. We struggle to get our Ravens off the ground and build our own UAS programs, but we're not really prepared to effectively deal with the enemy's drones. Uh, and that's particularly concerning, especially you know, what you're seeing on the battlefield today in recent conflicts. So my biggest concern is that we don't have the resident knowledge uh, to effectively think through the problem that we're being faced with where our near peer and peer adversaries are deploying this equipment effectively on their own and it's changing the dynamic of our fight. Uh, and it's, it's going to be a, something difficult to overcome and, and also to 
have permeate throughout the formation that this is a problem that we need to address. Uh, I couldn't agree more, sir. You know, uh, as the op four who's, you know, replicating this threat, uh, it's very concerning to me also that uh, I'm being able to operate with relative impunity uh, against our own formations and pretty much unobstructed. So at the beginning of the of our conversation, you described a fairly bleak scenario becoming more and more of reality every day. As you know, um, as the Op4 who's replicating this threat, you, um, I've been able to operate with relative impunity against our own formations, and it is concerning to myself that I'm able to do that. Uh, can you explain uh, your thoughts on how we can deal with these threats that we're seeing today uh, in today's conflicts? I've been thinking about this problem for quite a while, and what I write about in the paper is essentially what I've come to conclude. I truly believe that we need a capability within the rifle company or tank company that can address these threats, and it has to be organic. It can't be attached. And so after a lot of discussion with yourself and others, the thought that I came up with was that we need to redesign the way that the the rifle company looks like. Specifically, I see a large need for the addition of what I'll just call a combat support section. With the advent of robotics, the addition of armed drones to recent conflicts and all the things that are being talked about is just on the horizon for capabilities and technologies. We really need a foundation uh, trained personnel on which to overlay these new equipments and technologies. And so what I envision the combat support section would be is similar to a mortar section is an indirect fire capability organic to the company commander. The combat support section would include uh, MOS specific individuals with a large skill set in the use of drones countering drones, and also operating in the electronic warfare spectrum, which is getting a lot of talk these days uh, regarding how big of an impact it's going to have on the battlefield. Uh, electronic warfare is not new. It's been around for a long time, but it's becoming particularly relevant because of the advent of the technology and how low within adversarial formations the equipment is that can have an impact. We, I mean, we've added the information and cyber domains to warfare. And if you think back to the scenario uh, that I described at the beginning, you have a company commander with no true organic ability to deal with enemy UAS, whether it's armed or not armed. And that's a capability that I don't think can just be attached because then you run into a situation where you will have bubbles of protection over certain formations and not others. And it's just a matter of time before the enemy identifies who's not protected and then can attack them with impunity. And so if you have a combat support section with, you know, led by a staff sergeant and staffed with sergeants and specialists and privates that have special training in the use of drones and countering them and also in the use of electronic warfare tools, then you'll have given that company commander the ability to defend himself against enemy drones, use them himself, 
And then also he's got the ability to operate in the electronic warfare spectrum. And I think that that's really an untapped capability that we have that is going to be necessary when we take on a peer threat that's also employing them. And I realize that that is a significant ask. I mean, if you try to add a squad-sized element to every rifle company in the Army, I mean, that's huge numbers. But we've just got done talking about how a small team, such as that led by yourself, was able to create outsized effects with a couple drones and a radio that can talk back to an artillery formation. And so when you think of combat multipliers, I can't think of a better one than these tools that we are underutilizing right now. And that's the the drones and EW tools that continue to emerge and improve. And so I think to be able to compete on the modern battlefield, we need to have something of that nature in our formations. And if you listen to some of the Modern War Institute podcasts, we have Major General George on there from Futures Command talking about the dot mill PF solution, looking at everything from manning to training the full spectrum there, not just equipment, because people get wrapped around the excellent equipment. You know, what do you do when you have a breakthrough technology with a drone and you want to employ a new robotic piece of equipment? Right now, we have no formation or structure or organization on which to insert that piece of equipment and rapidly use it to effectiveness. And so I see this combat support section as being a bit of a canvas upon which we can add personnel or equipment that can be immediately employed by people that know how to use it. And so that's kind of what the paper talks about. Uh, Admittedly, my knowledge is limited when it comes to electronic warfare, which is another problem in and of itself, because I think that us maneuver leaders uh, are not necessarily getting the education that we need to be able to compete successfully in that domain. Something that we need to look at, you know, in our, our training program. So with that being said, you know, let's relook at the scenario that I opened with. You know, you have a company commander in a rotation here at Hohenfels, and he's going into the attack. Only this time, uh, he has, let's call it the combat support section available to him, staffed with uh, a subject matter expert in SUAS, counter-UAS, and EW. And he's got the people and equipment within that section that are trained and capable of employing their systems effectively. And so you... The commander now has the ability to throw up his own drone to begin observing the objective prior to his SP. Uh, In a future scenario, perhaps he's even got an armed drone that can begin to shape the battlefield uh, on the or shape the objective prior to him arriving. Then as he moves forward, he's got small teams deployed to provide a counter UAS bubble over him so that when the enemy employs their drones, Uh, maybe one, maybe it's a series of armed drones. Uh, The section is able to defeat those drones and protect the integrity of the rifle company as it moves forward. So as they approach the objective, it has been shaped. Key weapon systems have possibly been destroyed by our own uh, armed drones. We've defeated the enemy's ability to visually observe our approach uh, by defeating his drones and also defeating any of his armed drones that could impact our maneuver. And then 
thinking beyond the objective, they can also use the EW tools available to identify potential reinforcing elements from the enemy moving towards the objective or to deny the enemy's ability to bring additional drones into the fight and thus move that bubble of protection over top of the objective to allow the rifle platoons uh, to attack and seize the objective. So you've given, through the combat support section, you've given that rifle company commander all the tools that he needs uh, to accomplish his task and seize an objective in the 21st century fight and to do it effectively without you know, a significant uh, attrition of his formation. So that's kind of the way that I see the combat support section or something similar being necessary uh, when we talk about defeating an enemy with with peer capabilities. So that pretty much wraps up uh, kind of what the paper's about and then what I wanted to talk to today for this podcast. Uh, Sergeant Curley, do you have any final thoughts? Well, we all, as we've seen, it's uh, every day it gets a little more relevant and a little more out there and the ideas we're kind of toying with here, not only what five years ago would have been kind of ludicrous is now very much at the forefront, very much in our face. And uh, we can't really neglect them anymore. And it's, it's more of a question of just starting a conversation uh, about how we have these tools and that the system we have at hand is um, has to be um, tinkered with for improvements. Um, in addition, you know, we've talked about a lot about the TTPs, um, but we have to keep in mind the personnel who are going to do this are going to need their own career segues. Um, because right now, as it stands, there is no benefit for anybody in a maneuver formation to do this. Um, there's no ASIs. There's not even, it's not even on the professional development model for 19 and 11 series and 12 series soldiers. So when the first sergeant sits down and looks at courses uh, for soldiers to improve their careers right now, if you look at small UAS, it's, it's not there. It's uh, completely neglected. Hey, Sergeant Curley, thank you for joining me today. Always good to talk to you and great insights. For the audience, be sure to check out my article, Posture to Get More Arms into the Combined Arms Fight, which will appear in Infantry Magazine this summer. Thank you for tuning in to the Joint Multinational Readiness Center Train to Win podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our channel so you can hear about the forefront of training at combat training centers.